Well, good morning. It's uh, good to be with you again. And uh, I want to think uh, with you today about uh, John Calvin and uh, his thinking about justification. I'm going to say a little bit about Calvin's background. Uh, I'm not going to assume that you know something about his life. And uh, then I'm going to focus on the book that he wrote that earned him the epithet, uh, The Theologium. Uh, It was Philip Melanchthon, the Lutheran uh, theologian, co-worker of Luther, who described uh, Calvin as the theologian, and uh, justly so, as we look at the various books that were produced during the Reformation, uh, the systematic theology that has stood the test of time, that has stood out, is the book that we call The Institutes of the Christian Religion. And so I'm going to take you through a portion of that, that it's in book three, roughly sections 11, uh, chapters 11, and a number of sections from that in which Calvin lays out a number of items regarding uh, justification. Um, But I want to begin with a uh, picture. It's a picture of the Reformers. It was painted somewhere in the late... uh, 16th century, somewhere towards the 1580s, 1590s. It was commonly reproduced in various formats, and today it is found in the Rijksmuseum in Amsterdam. And it depicts a variety of the reformers. Um, If one was familiar with the pictures of the reformers, you'd know, you'd be able to go look at the picture and be able to pick out, oh yeah, that's, uh, that's Martin Bucer, and that's Johann Eucalampadius, and that's Philip Melanchthon, and so on. And they're gathered around a table in which there is a single object, and it's a candlestick. And on the candlestick, there is a candle that is lit. And the theme of the uh, picture, uh, it's called the candlestick, is the same theme that we looked at yesterday that the Reformation and the Reformers, at enormous cost to themselves, brought again into Europe the light of the gospel. That as the Reformers looked out upon the large expanse of the Western European continent, uh, what was called Christendom, in which the vast majority of people professed themselves to be Christians, except for a very few communities of Jews who, generally speaking, were isolated in various ghettos. Uh, The medieval period had not been kind to Jews at all. Uh, It's a a very striking irony that it was safer for a Jew to be living under Muslim rule than under so-called Christian rule during the medieval period. And uh, frequently they were subject to anti-Semitic attacks, not, ver- not only verbally, but physically. But the vast majority of Europe would have uh, believed themselves to be part of this one church, the Roman Catholic Church. There were dissenting groups. Uh, we mentioned these yesterday. People like the Lollards in England, men and women who from around the 1380s onwards stopped going to the parish church, met in small Bible groups, uh, had embraced the doctrines of the Reformation that we would hold dear. Uh, The Reformation had not yet come. They were students of the Bible, believed in justification by faith. Uh, There were groups like this, but by and large, the entirety of Europe was part of uh, what we call, what was called Christendom. And as the Reformers were raised up in the 1500s, Uh, beginning with people like Martin Luther. It is interesting, by the way, and I didn't mention this yesterday, that while Luther is remembered as the first to preach justification by faith, there were others before him in his own immediate uh, contemporary context. Jacques Lefebvre de Table, a French reformer, 1512, is preaching justification by faith in the heart of Paris. Actually, at the French court, he was a court preacher. But Luther is usually regarded as the kind of pioneer uh, reformer. And as these men and women looked, as these reformers looked out over Europe, what they saw was a 
Christianity that was a mile wide and an inch deep. They did not see gospel churches. And what they saw, and we'll touch on this a little bit at the end of my talk in terms of the fruit of justification, what they saw was uh, a paganized Christianity, a Christianity that uh, had a veneer, but it had, to all intents and purposes, had embraced much of the paganism that was in place before the uh, Christian missionaries had gone out into these various areas. That picture, let me come back to the picture, the candlestick, gathered around this uh, table on which there is the candlestick. Uh, There are the variety of figures, and as I said, if you are familiar with the pictures of the uh, 16th century, uh, you'd be able to pick out, oh, that's, uh, as I say, that's Butzer and Oikolampadius. But in the center of the picture are two figures. One is Luther. And the other is John Calvin. And the picture itself represents that in the providence of God, these two men played a remarkable, uh, had a remarkable impact for good, uh, for the gospel, for the extension of the kingdom. This is not to say that all of the other individuals who are in the picture are unimportant. It is not to say, this is very, very, very important, that these men were able to accomplish what they did without the help of others. The advances of the gospel, that whenever they take place, they always take place, and I think I can say this with some degree of confidence in terms of the study of church history, they always take place with God raising up leaders. Leaders are vital to the church, but it's not simply one man, one kind of, uh, Lone Ranger blazing the trail. Even even the Lone Ranger at Tonto, if you remember. Uh, but it's not uh, just one man blazing the trail. There are always a circle of men and women. Uh, we tend to think, and I'm not sure why this is, maybe it's some sort of human tendency, we tend to think of uh, the, 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 the kind of central figure who we focus on. And uh, I've done a lot of work, this is off to the side, but I've, to illustrate the point, I've done a lot of work on William Carey. And uh, William Carey has had, since his death in 1834, pioneered to India, he's had about 70 to 80 biographies written on him. Uh, biographies written for adults, for children, uh, all the way down to toddlers, uh, or at least, uh, you know, three or four years old. And I have a hobby of collecting these biographies. I've got about 60. And uh, they don't necessarily tell me anything new. Uh, but uh, he had a circle of men around him. And uh, it's very striking that those men around him, about a dozen men, uh, generally speaking, we have one or two biographies of them. And who we remember is Carrie. And so it is with John Calvin. Who do we remember? We remember John Calvin. But we don't remember People like Guillaume Farrell or William Farrell. Uh, one recent biography, there might be three or four in the 20th century. There are tons on Calvin. It's just shelf after shelf after shelf on Calvin. Or we don't remember Pierre Beret, probably Calvin's closest friend, co-worker in Geneva. He would eventually go to the city of Lyon where he would plant a church. Um, and uh, a number of years ago, there was a book published by a man named Machiel Vandenberg, Dutch author, called The Friends of Calvin. Uh, it's a book I would recommend to you. It's just a tremendous insight into about 30, 30 friends of Calvin, sometimes married couples, sometimes individuals. Uh, I thought I knew Calvin well. I've spent a lot of time reading Calvin over the years. Uh, I didn't know f- at least... Half of the people in the book, I had, I had not heard their names. And so we're going to focus on Calvin, but we need to recognize that Calvin's achievements were not done in isolation. And uh, whenever God, and this is a period of a great advance of the gospel, whenever God does such things, he does them by raising up a circle of friends. And if you want to see that in action, you just need to read Paul. 
And uh, Paul has friends again and again in his letter. Uh, one recent study of the Apostle Paul listed 57 figures whose names we know, sometimes just the name, but many of them very dear co-workers of the Apostle. Let me say a little bit about Calvin. I won't assume you know Calvin's uh, life at all. I think uh, that's important uh, to say something about Calvin's life before we launch into looking at the doctrine of justification in Calvin. Uh, Calvin is not German, unlike Luther. Uh, Calvin is French. He's born in northeastern uh, France, born in the area called Picardy. Um, it's amazing, uh, again, the th- sort of things that you learn uh, afresh about an author you may have been studying for a period of time. I started reading Calvin probably in the 1980, uh, 1980s. Uh, when I first started teaching uh, church history, I'd done a PhD at the history in the University of Toronto, and my first teaching assignment uh, at uh, Central Baptist Seminary in Toronto was to teach uh, the survey courses, survey one, early church to 1500, and then 1500 to the modern day. And somehow I'd gotten a PhD without studying the Reformation. I, I don't know how that, <laughs> I do not know how that worked out. And uh, so I was really thrown into the, into the deep end of the pool. I suddenly had to come up with all these lectures on the Reformation. And I've been reading Calvin pretty well since then, on and off over the years. And um, I want to say a little bit about his life, as I said. Uh, what struck me, in 2009 we celebrated the 500th anniversary, the quincentenary of Calvin, born in 1509. I did not know that his native tongue was not French. Uh, He's a Frenchman. Uh, When he goes to Geneva, he will preach in French. Uh, A a very uh, sophisticated, uh, cosmopolitan French uh, that he would preach. But his first tongue, his mother tongue, is a tongue called Picard, P-I-C-A-R-D. And it's very close to French. If you looked at it, uh, you think you're reading French, and then occasionally, if you know French, you hit these words, oh, no, that, that's not a French word. What, what's going on here? And uh, Picard is a language still spoken, northern, uh, northeastern France in Picardy. About 60,000 uh, people speak Picard. It's more than an accent. Uh, many, uh, many of the old world countries have all kinds of accents growing up in England, uh, I must, there must be about 25 to 30 major accents in England. And uh, I didn't live there all my teen years, so I'm not adept at being able to pin. You can usually pin people within maybe 30 miles or 40 miles where they're born if you grow up in that context. And France is the same. It's not an accent. It's a dialect. It's got a large amount of French in it, but it's got its, some of its own distinct words. And uh, the French unlike uh, us, are paranoid about their language. And they actually have an academy in Paris, uh, the Académie Française, that, de- that determines what is a proper French word, what's not a proper French word. And, uh, and um, uh, they have determined recently that Picard is not a legitimate French, uh, part of the French language. And so it's officially not taught in schools, uh, etc. But this is, this is uh, his mother tongue. He grew up in a very religious home. His mother was devoted to saints, regularly took him on pilgrimages. He rem- he'll remember being taken to a shrine of St. Anne, the same St. Anne that uh, Luther prayed to when he was in the thunderstorm, and where they had the forefinger of St. Anne. And uh, his mother instructed him to kiss this. It would help him in getting time off purgatory, and he never forgot that. He, uh, Calvin, on, uh, Calvin had a really deep sense of satire. Uh, satire is a very difficult uh, art form uh, to be satirical and not to become across as, as cynical. And He writes a book called On Relics, and it's, it's kind of a fun, fun book. You know, he's got things in there like, you know, there are so many pieces of the true cross in Europe, 
Noah could have used them to build the ark. <laughs> you know, or he's got the one where he's found out, oh, there are actually three heads of John the Baptist. So, like, uh, two of them are, are not true, or maybe he had three heads. <laughs> anyway, um, so Calvin would never forget that. His mother dies early. His father raises him. His father's uh, Gerard. By the way, John Calvin, that's not his French name. It's Jean Cauvin, C-A-U-V-I-N. And uh, Calvin would later, when he writes in Latin, it would become Calvinus. And that's where we get Calvin. We drop off the U.S. And so his father, Gerard Cauvin, was a lawyer attached to the cathedral at Noyon in Picardy. And he was able to secure a number of benefits for his young uh, son. And uh, one of the benefits was around the age of 12 years old, Calvin was appointed the priest in charge of two churches. And obviously he wasn't the priest. And what that meant was there was a lucrative amount of money that came into the house. And a portion of the money, maybe a third of the money, they paid some, some guy to do the actual job. And the rest of the money was theirs. That actually funded Calvin's education. This was common throughout Europe. It's what we call nepotism. And uh, 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 the, the Roman church in the medieval period is just riddled with it. Uh, some of the popes in the late medieval period, for instance, will appoint their six-year-old nephew, uh, the Archbishop of Milan or the Archbishop of Lisbon. Significant amounts of money would come into the households and then they'd have somebody actually do some of the administrative work at a much lower cost. And so Calvin then was raised in a deeply religious home. His father wants him to be a priest. He sends him off to Paris in 1523. He's 14 years old. He begins to study for preparation to go to the great French university, still exists today, the Sorbonne. And... He studies at a place called the Collège de, la, de, de Montaigu. Um, the uh, 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 Renaissance author Erasmus had studied there a few years earlier. He said the place reeked of violent smells and was filthy, and all he came away from the place with was bedbugs. <laughs> And so it was not the most hospitable environment, although it was a very tough environment. It's very interesting, uh, tough educationally. It's very interesting that the founder of the Jesuits, Ignatius Loyola, the year that Calvin graduated and uh, started studies at the Sorbonne, uh, he, uh, Ignatius Loyola, turned up there. Uh, very interesting if they ever met. Ignatius Loyola, we don't have time obviously to do this, was a very, very important figure in what's called the Counter-Reformation. Uh, the attempt of the Roman Church to roll back the Reformation. He's the founder of the Jesuits. Um, Calvin uh, doesn't finish his education in the Sorbonne. In 1528, 1529, his father has a deep quarrel with the Roman Church. He's uh, asked by the bishop to show his books, um, and uh, he's either, in his mind, being accused of swindling the Church, he's fiddling the books, or he's being accused of incompetence. Either way, he doesn't give his books to the church, uh, bishop. The bishop ends up excommunicating him, a horrifying act, which means when he dies, he goes directly to hell. And uh, Calvin's father writes to uh, Calvin and says, that's it, We're not, you're not going through for the priesthood anymore. And he sends him off to study law, law at Orleans. Uh, we, we've got New Orleans named after that city. And uh, there it is, he studies law, he'll study law for three years. He will never get a formal theological degree. Uh, last night at the panel, we had a number of questions about the importance of uh, theological education, studying the languages. I am completely for that, completely in favor of that. I've spent my whole life in that world. But one of the glories of the life of the church is that God, from time to time, raises up men who don't have formal theological education. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, William Carey, uh, John Calvin, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones. And uh, Now, these men are exceptional. If you, if you think, oh, yeah, well, you know, I'm kind of like one of them. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, 
Well, if you, all power to you if you think that, but uh, the likelihood you're like the rest of us, you do need to go to seminary or some sort of theological context where you can have formal instruction. Uh, so Calvin never has a formal theological education. He ends up with a degree in law. When is he converted? That's a big debate. We, we could spend an hour talking about that. Um, 1530, that's where J.I. Packer thinks he's converted. Uh, he's following a, a, a very well-known Calvin scholar, T.H.L. Parker, a man who kind of read everything Calvin wrote and just a, a brilliant Calvin scholar. When you have a man like that as a historian, my specialty is not Calvin. I obviously have had to do a lot in Calvin. Uh, you're reluctant to disagree. You know This, this guy knows Calvin, uh, but I, I don't think he's right. I think Calvin's conversion comes in 1533. And one of the reasons for that is that conversion issues in a degree of integrity and honesty and making things right when things have been wrong. And in 1533, Calvin goes back to New York and he gives up those two churches that he'd been getting money from. He'd been getting money from these churches for at that point for nigh on probably 12, 14, 15 years. Had never done a thing for them. They basically funded his education, uh, funded his graduate education, and uh, what had he done for them? Nothing. He'd been a complete absentee minister. And in 1533, he goes back and he gives that up. And I, I think that's proof of his, of his conversion. Um, anyway, so he's converted around 1533. It's not an easy time to be in France. Um, uh, and, a, and, a, and an incident takes place that will lead Calvin to have to flee. It's called, uh, in French, uh, La Fête des Placards. Um, I'm not sure how you... It's a very difficult word, phrase to translate into English. The affair of the billboards is probably the best way. Uh, a, a French pastor... Sometimes pastors and Christians are not... They're zealous, but zeal without knowledge... <laughs> And this guy, this guy comes up with a brilliant idea. What he's going to do is he's going to post, he wants to advertise the Reformation and the necessity of the gospel all through major cities in France. And so he comes up with this idea. He's going to write out billboards and he's going to put them in all prominent places in major cities like Paris and Marseille and Lyon and Orléans, etc. And at the heart of the billboard is the French expression, la messe. Et une abomination. Uh, the mass is an abomination. <laughs> Not the wisest course. What really, what really kind of digs his, the, digs his hole, as it were, or digs his grave, is he's got a friend on the inside of the royal palace, and he, he speaks to the guy, and he says, do you, think, do you think he could get me into the palace so I could put one of these on the king's bedroom door? Francis I wakes up that morning, comes out. There's the sign on his door. He's absolutely furious. He issues a decree which gives evangelicals. Please note the number. There's around 2,000 evangelicals in 1534 in France. 20 million souls in that nation. 2,000 evangelicals. Most of them in Paris. And uh, he gives... He gives uh, to the, the uh, 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 French evangelicals, three choices. Number one, our great desire is you come back to Mother, Mother Church. All this talk about justification by faith alone is heresy. Come back to Mother Church, and we, 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 we delight in that. Number two, if you don't want to come back to Mother Church, you're going to maintain justification by faith alone. We don't want you. Leave the country. Number three, if you don't like either of those options, namely you don't want to leave the country and you're not going to come back to Mother Church and you're going to stay here and preach this heresy, we have one word for you. We are going to burn you. Uh, Calvin's landlord, a man named Etienne de La Forge, is arrested. He's burned at the stake in Paris. Calvin's rooms are searched. Uh, probably some of his early papers that describe his early Christian life were seized. That's why we have very difficult uh, time tracing through exactly when was he converted. They were probably seized. Calvin flees for his life. 
And uh, one of the things you need to know about Calvin, unlike Luther, Luther, Luther was a man who wore, his, wore all of his emotions on his sleeve. So uh, Luther's preaching or writing a commentary on the book of Genesis, and he's talking about Joseph, for example. This is, this is a famous example. And he starts talking about Pharaoh. You know, you've got to get to Pharaoh, right? You're eventually in Joseph. And as soon as he starts thinking about Pharaoh and Pharaoh's tyranny, he thinks about the Pope. So he's off then for, talking for a page about the Pope in his commentary on Genesis. And as soon as he starts talking about the Pope, he has to think about how God delivered him by justification of my faith from the Pope's tyranny. So after about two pages of his own personal testimony, he remembers, oh yeah, I am writing a commentary on Genesis. And he comes back to Joseph. Uh, you, you'd get this in his preaching too. He'd, he's one of these great preachers. You know, you're going along and he, you're on the subject. And suddenly he's off on a rabbit trail and maybe 15 minutes later he's back on target. Calvin is never like that. Never, ever like that. In fact, you could listen to Calvin and when he goes to Geneva to preach the gospel, and he's there for the best part of 30 years as a preacher of the gospel, and if you never actually went and talked to him, you would know nothing virtually about his personal life. He never talks about his personal life. He had the dictum that Martin Lloyd-Jones had, that when a man goes into the pulpit to preach, he is to preach the Word of God and not to talk about himself. Whether or not we agree with that, that's another issue. And whether or not that's appropriate, that's another issue. Uh, but we have a little, there's a couple little times that Calvin was uh, autobiographical. 1562, he's preaching on 1 Samuel, David being pursued by Saul, and uh, the terror that must have gripped David. And he, said, he leans over the pulpit and says, Brothers and sisters, I know exactly how he felt. And then he doesn't say any more. <laughs> he just goes on talking about David and Samuel. And if you'd be there, you'd be like, well, what's he talking about? Like, tell us more. Well, it must have been that incident in 1534 when his rooms were searched and he had to flee. He ends up in Geneva. Um, he has an encounter with a man named Guillaume Farel. Very, very different character than, uh, than uh, Luther. Farel had already written a, a small systematic theology in which he'd laid out the, the number of biblical, biblical teachings, including justification by faith, and, uh, but very different. Uh, Calvin's an introvert. Uh, Farel was a massive extrovert. Calvin was slightly built, sallow complexion, dark hair, dark eyes. Uh, Farel, huge man for that day. Six foot two, six foot three. That's a giant of a man. I know that there are many in our day that are that, uh, that tall, but in that day it was very, very tall. Bright red hair, blue eyes. And uh, by the way, red hair. I, lo I love red hair. My wife's a redhead, and that's one of the reasons I was attracted to her. But uh, I, I love red hair, but uh, red hair is, is not attractive in the Middle Ages. Whenever Judas, is normally whenever Judas is normally portrayed in pictures in the Middle Ages, he's always got red hair. So when you, you look at a group of disciples, oh, so which one's Judas? Aha, the redhead. But uh, Pharrell was a ferocious character, and um, he comes to Calvin, asks him to help him in Geneva. Uh, Calvin's, Calvin tells him, look, you know, I, 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 I'm not a preacher. I'm a scholar. And, and, and my goal in life is to go out and find a nice little library where I can be quiet and write books. And it doesn't happen that way. Uh, Frell gets frustrated in the conversation. And finally, he does what we hope doesn't happen in the call of pastors today. Uh, he curses him. May God damn all your studies unless you stay here with me. <laughs> Calvin said... I, it was as if the hand of God came down and rooted him to the spot. He was absolutely terrified, uh, terrified of, of Pharrell and terrified of what Pharrell, the, the malediction that Pharrell had just uttered against him. And, and so he stays in, in Geneva. And we won't go through all of his career, but the heart of his career, the heart of his preaching was, the God, uh, was justification by faith alone. And if we were to do justice to this topic, we would have to look at Calvin's sermons, uh, Calvin's uh, various letters. We're going to look at uh, the book of the, what he calls the Institutes. Um, it was Philip Melanchthon, his, uh, his Lutheran co-reformer, 
who once said to, to Calvin, you are the theologian. Uh, there were a number of uh, uh, systematic theologies written in the middle of uh, the Reformation. None of them are really reprinted today, but the Institutes is reprinted regularly. And uh, it is a remarkable uh, study. They, they, the title is not a good title, uh, The Institutes of the Christian Religion. I, I've never known what the word institutes means in English uh, in that regard. Like, is it some sort of edifice? Is it some sort of institution, like a building? Is it some sort of organization? Uh, it's, a very, it's an unfortunate word. The word institutio, the Latin, means introduction. And uh, Institutes of the Christian Religion, the word religio in Calvin's language had the idea of piety. And the book is this. This is what the book is, An Introduction to Christian Piety. That's the real title. Now, Calvin, if we read the Institutes of the Christian Religion, what's that? And the book is about piety. An experiential piety that is grounded in gospel truth. The book is about how to live the Christian life. It's a primer on how to live the Christian life in light of biblical doctrine. And uh, that's the heart of the way. It's, it's a fabulous book. And um, one of the great challenges, I think, since the uh, Civil War here in the United States is that uh, all too frequently, systematic theologies have tended to follow an academic model of textbooks in other, in other fields, and many of them are dry as dust. And uh, now I'm a, I'm a historian, so you, I'm treading on dangerous ground here, especially with <laughs> our dear brother, uh, Dr. Grudem, who is a systematician. And, uh, but many, many uh, systematic theologies are, are dry as dust. And I, 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 need to, I need to say a word that I've said in many classes and those who know me, that one of the things I have deeply appreciated about Dr. Grudem's is that they are, there is a, 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 a piety that runs through them. And I have delighted in recommending Dr. Grudem's systematic theology again and again and again because you get a sense of uh, a love of God and one of the, one of the things I, th- I think is fabulous in is the recommendation of hymns. I don't know any other systematic theology that's like that. Uh, there's other systematic theologies that are used today. I will not mention names. And uh, you don't get any sense of passion. There's no sense of doxology. If theology doesn't lead to doxology, there's something problematic. Uh, our, do- our study of the Word of God and and, and theology should lead to doxology, to worship and adoration. And uh, thankfully, Dr. Grudem's uh, and, uh, the, uh, the systematic theology has that, that sense there. And would that we had more. And that's Calvin. And that's the way systematic theology was done, down to probably the middle of the, 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 the 19th century. You read, you read Edwards. Uh, you read Andrew Fuller. You read John Owen. You can't read them without them shifting suddenly. They're in the middle of a, 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 a discussion of a theological point, and they shift into doxology. It's, it's, a, it's a pattern of theology. It goes all the way back to Paul. Romans 11. He's laid out, Romans is, is laid out this, this remarkable overview of the Christian life, and then, uh, oh, the, the wonder of God and how unscrutable his judgments. And he ends up, that little, that little word, oh, the wonder of the Christian life and the wonder of Christian thought. So Calvin's uh, Institutes is a book of, 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 of piety that is grounded in doctrine. Uh, four books in the Institutes. Book one deals with knowing God the Father. Book two deals with, deals with knowing God the Son. Books 3 and 4 deal with knowing God the Holy Spirit. And it's no wonder B.B. Warfield, the great Presbyterian theologian, said, John Calvin is the theologian of the Holy Spirit. And uh, it's always amazed me that in the last century or so, that those who embrace, broadly speaking, Calvin's worldview have lost interest in the Spirit. 
And that was passionate to Calvin. It was passionate to his heirs, the Puritans, and coming down from them into 18th and 19th century uh, Calvinistic evangelicals. We looked at yesterday a little bit about the problems of justification in the medieval period. I don't want to rehearse that. I do want to mention, though, that in uh, the mid-1540s, the Roman Catholic Church realized that this, this, this protest against her theology was not going to go away. It was not a little tempest in a teapot. The something had to be done. And for about 20 years, Roman Catholic theologians met in Rome at the Council of Trent to lay out a systematic response to the reformers. Well, in that response, one of the things that is said is this. If someone teaches, quote, that by faith alone the impious is justified, in such wise to mean that nothing else is required to obtain the grace of justification, let him be anathema. Let him be damned to hell. And I, 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 that, that, that will be a dominant view of justification all the way down to the 1960s. I'm not an expert on post-Vatican II uh, uh, Roman Catholic theology, so I, I hesitate to say any statement regarding post-Vatican II uh, theology. But that certainly was the dominant view of the Roman Church. I know in recent years, the Rome drew up in the, in the Reformation period what was called the Papal Index, and you didn't want to get your name on the papal index because you were in hell if you were. Uh, Luther was on there. Calvin's on there. Uh, in recent years, I think Luther's kind of been rehabilitated. I don't, I don't know how you do that. <laughs> you know, but anyway, I think, I, 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 I think it was uh, uh, Cardinal Ratzinger, Pope Benedict XVI, actually has some very kind words to say about, about, uh, about Luther. And the present pope, who is interesting... Uh, uh, I think he, he actually said, I think recently at one point, so, so we, we all like Luther, you know? Um, he's a good guy. And I'm thinking, man, you just don't know what, what happened back there. And um, Calvin has not been rehabilitated. And he's still in the papal index. But we thank God that God has different opinions. Before justification, what state are we in? We are under the wrath of God. That's the state we're in. Every human being who you know who is not justified by faith is under the wrath of God. This is Calvin. As iniquity is abominable to God, so neither can the sinner find grace in his sight so far as he is and so long as he is regarded as a sinner. Hence, wherever sin is, there is the wrath and vengeance of God. If men and women were in the presence of a holy God, they would know that all too well, that they have nothing to recommend themselves to his favor. They are under the wrath of God. When we when all will stand before God, all the motives of the heart will be stripped bare. And it'll be a horrifying day for those outside of Christ. That's where Calvin begins. He begins with, with that in the light of the knowledge of God, we are all in a damnable state. No matter how good we might appear and how respectable we might appear, our good works are deeply tainted with sin. We just don't know how deeply tainted. Our hearts are bent. They're crooked. We're dead in sin. We're in bondage to sin. The Reformation takes a realistic look at human beings. And uh, the human condition, the medieval, I think the medieval church is, 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 is typically human in this. The reality is we just don't like to take a hard look at ourselves Surely we're nice people, most of us. Yeah, yeah, yeah okay, there's a, there's a Hitler, you know, hanging around, uh, and a Mussolini, and uh, Saddam Hussein, and uh, Gaddafi. And, but the rest of us, we're, we're really kind of nice people, aren't we? 
And the reality is, no, we're not. And the reason we're not is because we do not love God supremely. We are not like the Lord Jesus Christ, who at every moment of his life, his, his every thought and action was for the glory of the Father and born out of a deep, deep, essential love for the Father. That is not what drives us. We are not what we should be. How can we then move out of a situation of being condemned in the presence of God? Well, for, for, for Calvin, it is justification by faith. What does justification by faith mean? Two things for Calvin. Forgiveness of sins. We're sinners. I was uh, trained in an Anglican seminary, uh, Wycliffe uh, College in the University of Toronto, Evangelical Anglican School, and there, there's a great phrase in the Book of Common Prayer, uh, that which we have done we uh, ought not to have done, and that which we have thought we ought not to have thought, and that which we have, we have said we ought not to have said, and we have left undone those things we ought to have done, and left undone those things we ought to have said, and left undone those things we ought to have thought. And we're in a damnable state. We need to be forgiven of our sins. The second thing is, uh, for Calvin, justification means forgiveness of sins, and it means the imputation of Christ's righteousness. If we think that as Christians that because we do good deeds, and Christians do good deeds, Calvin knows that, Christians are to be zealous for good deeds, that those good deeds merit the favor of God. We just don't know ourselves. Because our, even the best of our deeds are tainted. The motivation is not always what it should be. There are elements in those good deeds that are sin. And uh, what we need then to come into the presence of God, God is a holy, holy God. Amen. And if we think we can come into His presence with sin, we have a low view of God. We have some idea of God, oh, He's going to wink at sin. No, no. We need, we, need, we need an absolute purity, as pure as the angel's purity. Where are we going to get such a purity? The Lord Jesus Christ. That's why Christ's incarnation and life in which he lived, we, we know nothing about those 30 years prior to the, the, uh, the, the, the event of the temple and his 12 years old. What is he doing in those years, those silent years? You know, you've had uh, all kinds of rubbishy views over the years. You know, he, uh, One view is he went off to Tibet and was meditating with... Uh, uh, Buddhist monks over there. And, uh, there's no historical basis, obviously, for that. Uh, in England, I grew up in England, there was this mythology, goes all the way back to the Middle Ages, that Jesus actually w- came to England. And there's a great hymn. I, I love the hymn. It's just this theology is terrible. The, the tune's great. It's the, the, the William Blake's hymn, you know, Jerusalem. And if you know Chariots of Fire, it's in there. Uh, did those feet in ancient times walk upon England's holy land? And as I said, I'm, I'm an Englishman, and well, it kind of stirs you up, but just wretched, it's wretched theology. <laughs> that, that's, that's something, by the way, very important. I wonder sometimes how much we're stirred by stuff we sing, and we need to step back like, what actually are we saying in these, some of these hymns? Um... No, no, we, 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 need, we need Christ's righteousness. Uh, and the righteousness that he wrought in those 30 years in which he completely fulfilled the law. No man could go. I mean, the law is not given. Okay, so the law is given and in the New Testament. Okay, God says, uh, we've got to forget all that stuff. And, it was just kind of preparatory stuff, and it really doesn't, it's not important. No, no, God gave the law that it might be fulfilled. And we, to go into his presence, must fulfill the law. We can't fulfill the law. We need one, a great high priest. We need a priest. The, the Roman medieval church knew that. 
The only problem is it had all these earthly priests who were sinners, and they failed to read Hebrews. We have a great high priest. We need one who will stand between us and God and who gives us his perfect righteousness. What is justification? Justification is the forgiveness of your sins. But that's not enough. You need a perfect righteousness. It is provided for you freely, without cost, simply by your trusting in his death and resurrection. And so for Calvin, then, justification is these two sides. One is forgiveness of sins. The other is the imputation of Christ's righteousness. Now, a third point, faith. What part does faith play? Faith justifies. But it's not our faith that is the foundation of our being declared right with God. Faith lays hold of Jesus. In the medieval world, they had a number of different words for faith. One of them is the word ascensus, A-S-S-E-N-S-U-S, ascensus. We get the English word ascent from it. Ascensus was intellectual. If you went through many of the parishes in in, uh, Catholic Europe, and you would ask people, uh, do you believe in the incarnation? Do you believe in the virgin birth? Do you believe in the... The, uh, the Trinity. Uh, you would have to go through a catechism when you were 12 years old and you were confirmed. I remember this as a Roman Catholic. Uh, around 12 or 13 year old, years old, the bishop came and we went through a catechism and I was asked these questions. And yeah, I, <laughs> I had no idea what I was saying yes to. You know, I said, oh yeah, I believe that. And I believe that. And I believe that. That's a census. It's intellectual. But It's not genuine saving faith. It's merely intellectual. We sometimes talk about, you know, head knowledge, heart knowledge. I'm not really fully happy with those terms at times. But that, in some ways, is what a census is. It's simply head knowledge. It's intellectual. It's the sort of knowledge I have, for instance, I look at that table. It's round. It's maybe three feet tall. Um, It's covered in a black sheet. Uh, etc., etc. It can seat eight people or whatever. Uh, I've got certain knowledge of that. Is there any affection for that table? (laughs) (laughs) Well, there there might be. If I found out that table, you know, maybe you don't know this. This table actually uh, was uh, used by Charles Spurgeon. His signature is underneath the table. You you didn't know that. He had bought it in an auction somewhere around 1850, and it actually had been used by John Wesley. In fact, that table goes all the way back to John Calvin. Now, you you didn't know that, did you? And all their signatures are under there. Well, I might be, then I might be deeply interested in the table, but then then the, the knowledge shifts from just mere intellectual head knowledge. Now I've got an interest in the table. I want the table. And uh, that's akin to the other word for faith, fiducia. That's the medieval way of saying it, fiducia, F-I-D-U-C-I-A. Fiducia is trust that has in it an element of love. Faith saves because it trusts in the Savior. It is the Lord Jesus Christ who saves us. I'm, you know, again, our culture is silly this way. You know, as long as you've got faith in something, you know, you've got to have faith. But no, no, we have to have faith in the right object. Faith in faith is not going to save you. It's faith in Jesus Christ. He is the Savior. Faith is the instrument that lays hold of the Savior. That's why faith saves. Faith in itself doesn't save in a proper sense. It is faith, fiducia in Him. Not simply a census. Not simply He is the Son of God. He is the incarnate second person of the Trinity. He is fully God. He died on the cross. He was raised again on the third day. If those things are not part of my heart, in which I have a love for Him, and a trust in Him, 
I'm not saved. I can rattle off all kinds of stuff. There are biblical scholars in North America who know tons more about Jesus and his life than I do. And some of them aren't saved because they have not trusted in him. They know stuff about him, but they've not trusted him. And so faith then is the means of justification. Christ is the grounds. Faith lays hold of the ground. And then finally, what about, what about uh, the fruit of justification? What, what does it bring? Well, first of all, in justification, we are freely pardoned of all our sins. What a glorious thought that all my sins, the sins of thought, word, and commission, the ones I can remember. I remember many years ago, about three years after my conversion, uh, my, my youth was misspent. And uh, one of the things that some friends and I used to like doing was stealing flags. And... Uh, the Canadian Air Force has a particular type of flag. It's a beautiful flag. And I remember stealing it. No idea where it ended up. And uh, I'd long forgotten it. And um, I was, uh, uh, after I'd been converted about the, the, the area where we were living, there was a one-way street. At the top of the street, there was a house that had the Canadian flag flying. And it was about three years after my conversion. And I'm driving up that street, and I see the flag and that whole scene came back to my mind of stealing it. And I remembered that sin. And I think when you, uh, there are sins like that, you need to try to make restitution. And in God's grace, I went to the house and, and told them. I said, you know, um, you used to fly the Canadian flag. Oh, they still do. And uh, I said, have you ever had any of them stolen? And uh, uh, I said, I, I stole one uh, four years ago, and I'd like to make, make it up to you. And they said, well, I don't think we, had, we did have it stolen. And they, they, they insisted they, they'd not lost it. And, well, okay. And, <laughs> um, there are sins we remember. There are things I've said. I, I was part of a clique. You know, when you're in high school, you want to get into cliques. And when you get into the clique, one of the big things about getting into a clique, the cool people... And I was a, a typical late 60s, early 70s, you know, with a, uh, I wasn't a hippie. I was, you know, the, what we used to call the freaks. And, <laughs> uh, acid heads. And they, they were the cool people. I want to get in with them. And once you get in, you want to keep people out. And I remember one of the most shameful things I did was, was words I said to a young man about, you're not wanted here. Yeah, we all want you. I, I just wish, and I've prayed, I would love to meet him. That, this has is, this is got to be now uh, 45 years ago. Uh, I'd love to meet him and ask his forgiveness. I did meet somebody. I, I won't go into details of this. Uh, they had found my name on Facebook, and they phoned me. And they said, do you remember me? And uh, I had hurt this person. And... I knew immediately what I had to do, and I said, please, I, I have to ask your forgiveness. And they said, oh, you know, we were young, and no, no, please forgive me. There are sins we remember, and sometimes we can make restitution. Many times we can't. There are words we say, thoughts we say, but there are sins we don't remember. When you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, all of your sins, every one of them, is laid on him. Just think of the weight that he took. Just, the weight, just think of the weight of sin in this room. Uh, we sang a hymn yesterday by Augustus Montague, top lady, one of my great favorite, favorites. Uh, he actually has a, one of his little tracks. He actually computes, <laughs> I don't know how he comes up with this, how many sins that you do in a, like a 50-year span starting around the age of 15 to 65. And like, it's in the millions. It's, it's scary. But think of that. All of God's people 
All of those sins laid on the Savior. We are freely pardoned of all our sins in justification. Secondly, God regards us as righteous. We are saints. Yes, we still sin. But when we sin, we are not acting in according with our relationship. We are saints in Christ. We are holy men and women. We need to live that way. We have confidence to come into the presence of God. What a tremendous... If you, you have a, a glimpse of the holiness of God. This is where Calvin begins, with the holiness of God as institutes. If you have a glimpse of the holiness of God, you then start to realize what you're like. But when you're justified by faith, you can come into the presence of God. You can sing with meaning that last stanza of And Can It Be... Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. It's a tremendous hymn. We possess the indwelling of the Spirit. We are actually joined with Christ. I I, I don't have time. I'm running out of time to get into this whole area of union and justification. For Calvin, and this, this is very important, for Calvin, there are two key, key themes. One is justification by faith. The other is union with Christ. So when God looks on us as holy, it's not simply God saying, well, I'm going to pretend they're holy. We are joined in with Jesus. We are in Christ. We are joined by the bond of the Holy Spirit. Well, this is an area, and I could, I could spend a lot of time on this, but I won't, obviously and I can't, that we, we have failed as evangelicals. One of the first things we need to tell believers, young believers, is that they are now indwelt by the Spirit of God. I think far too many of our congregations are terrified of the Holy Spirit. Some of that's got to do with Pentecostal excesses, charismatic excesses. But having said that, the Holy Spirit is the great promise of the Old Testament. And when you are justified by faith, God comes and lives within your heart by the Spirit. We now possess the Spirit. When you are justified by faith, you now can live as God meant you to live, for His glory. That's a great theme in Calvin. What is the goal of life? The glory of God. To live to His glory. And then finally, justification by faith provides the foundation for spirituality. Spirituality is a big buzzword today. And uh, for Calvin, this is the foundation of the Christian life, a life of love. Remember yesterday we talked about, uh, if, if I'm justified by faith, I can genuinely love others. They need my good works. I don't need my good works to be saved, but they need my good works. And spirit, justification by faith then becomes the foundation out of which spirituality and a life of good works flows. I have no idea, well I do, but I have no, from one standpoint, I have no idea why every human society shouldn't want to be filled with Christians. Like what on earth is our culture thinking? Starting to attack believers. Christians, when they live according to the gospel, are the best possible citizens in any society. Anybody, any politician in his right mind would want his culture filled with them. Think of it. Filled with men and women living to the glory of God, trying to do good works, trying to better their fellow men. I mean, it's just, it's just practical common sense. Why is that not the case? Well, we have a devil who hates the church. And if he can't attack our Lord Jesus, he'll, he'll attack his people. It is on the basis of justification by faith in Geneva that the Christians who went out from Geneva, pastors, turned Europe upside down. And I'll give you one example. In uh, Geneva, when uh, Calvin fled there in 1534, uh, uh, 1536 rather, there were probably two, 3,000 evangelicals in France out of a population of 20 million. As that gospel began to be preached, God poured out His Spirit in France. So when Calvin died in 1564, there were 20 million evangelicals. Sorry, 2 million. <laughs> the, whole, the whole country would be. Two, 2 million. 2 million evangelicals. 10% of the population. But it was 50% of the middle class, 
50% of the upper class. I, I, somebody, I, I've said this in other contexts, somebody needs to do a study of church growth in France in 40 years to go from 2,000 to 2 million. That's a revival. And at the heart of the revival is the preaching of justification by faith alone. There are churches, like there was a church outside Paris called Charenton, 15,000 members who delighted in the gospel that we've looked at in yesterday evening and then this morning. And so why do we remember these events? We remember these events because they are foundational to our churches. Our churches, if you trace their history back, go back to these, these days. But they are also a deep encouragement to us that we need to preach the gospel. And God's word, Isaiah, my word will go forth as the rains come down and the snows and bring forth fruit from the earth. So will his gospel. We live, I think we live in terrifying days. What is our response? It should not be fear. Do not fear, my people. God is with us. The Lord of hosts, the Lord of Jacob is with us. The God of Jacob is with us. Do not be terrified. Be bold. Preach the gospel. Live the gospel. And God will honor his word. Amen.